So thank you everyone and welcome to this week's speaker series. I'm happy to be joined today by Benoit and from MFS. Benoit, thank you for joining us today. Hello everyone. Um, so let me talk about how I would um, discuss uh, the outlook for fixed income and in particular uh, credit. Uh, I'm actually quite constructive on credit at this point in time and for maybe three main reasons, right? The, the, the main, main reason number one is the macro environment uh, is much more supportive uh, of credit. Why is that? Well, let's talk about growth. Everybody is obsessed with recession uh, in the US. Is there going to be a recession or not? Well, guess what? Uh, I'm not nervous at all. Uh, if there's indeed a recession, uh, it's going to be a very mild one. And in fact, uh, it looks like the case for soft lending uh, is looking better and better. Uh, so we might actually see no recession at all, uh, which obviously is really good for risky assets. And why would that be the case? Well, I would like to say this business cycle has been weird. It's not your typical business cycle. So all the relationships that people were talking about, they don't work anymore. There are a few weird things that have confused um, market uh, participants. And therefore, that um, uh, soft landing that nobody saw coming uh, is now a strong possibility. I, I'm, I'm going to give you a few examples. That typically, under recession, the labor market adjusts through a spike in the unemployment rate. It's not happening. Uh, what's going on right now is it's the opening uh, job openings that are uh, adjusting, not the unemployment rate. Another thing is the economy is actually much less vulnerable or sensitive to interest rates. Back in the day, a higher interest rate would do a lot of damage, but that's not the case anymore. Why? Well, the consumer is much less levered, right? So the, the, the consumer debt is much lower than it was before. Um, the, 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 um, the corporate sector, you know, talking about credit, uh, the duration of the index has extended by quite a bit. So it's actually less painful uh, uh, now, uh, that interest rate shock. And I would also argue, if you look at the structure of the US economy, the share of the sectors that are highly sensitive to interest rates, like housing and all that, uh, the, you know, the, the consumption of durable goods, that share has gone down over time, right? So overall, we are in a very strong position and I really positive on the uh, growth outlook and that helps uh, the, the case for, for credit. What about inflation? Inflation was the big deal last year, right? Um, now disinflation, is well on the way, it's actually looking pretty good. Even housing, which was the lagging part of the inflation picture, uh, is now catching up and we're seeing rents going uh, lower and house prices going lower and that is going to feed into the official data and we end up with an inflation number, which is already, by the way, in the low threes, right? The headline, uh, the core inflation is a bit stickier, uh, but also moving lower. Uh, so the inflation picture, I think it's uh, is gone now. So I've talked about growth. I've talked about inflation. What about rates? Well, rates we've seen that correction uh, uh, over the past few weeks. We've obviously had a big correction last year. I would say the correction this year is for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. And again, back to my earlier point, why did rate go up? 
because the outlook for growth has been upgraded. <laughs> so it's a good reason for rates to go up. But now they've gone, they've gone up enough, I would say, with uh, richer high level. And it's actually very positive for, for credit and spread products. Why? Because your starting yield is much higher. And that does provide a lot of protection from the valuation standpoint. Uh, so I'll talk about that in a bit as well. Uh, uh, so growth looking good, inflation, disinflation on the way, rates due, I would say the, the risk of a sharp upside to rates at this point in time is very limited because we've seen a big correction already. Central banks, uh, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be scared about the Fed anymore. The Fed is done, right? Uh, so uh, the Fed is going to disappear in the picture right? after being the main actor of turbulence and stress for the past few quarters. The Fed is going away. Uh, so that uh, opens the door for uh, a, a risk appetite, uh, for a much stronger market backdrop, and for deploying uh, credit risk. So, that oh, was so first uh, let me ask you here. Let me let me let me like interrupt one second and, and say so. It, 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 I agree with you that the sort of overall the outlook, especially in the near term in the U.S., has has improved. It stays strong. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it has improved, but it has definitely stayed strong. It has stayed strong than than a lot of people thought. Um, but let's talk about those inflation numbers because you said that the that the Fed is done, and and we tend to share your view, but. We we do think that there's also some risk that the Fed could potentially have to start um, either a a new hiking cycle. It's not our base case. It doesn't sound like it's your base case either. But there is a risk, um, and or remain uh, at these rate levels for an extended period of time, right? And and some of the repricing that we've seen in markets here in August and in the first few days of September have been directly tied to some stronger, let's say, uh, a pricing data that has come in, right? We saw the ISM services paid number came in stronger than expected. Uh, we even saw some employment data improve on that survey. Um, we've also seen some stickier numbers out of Europe. Uh, so it's not just a US story, it's also a Europe story. How are you thinking about uh, some of these risks? Do you see them as substantial, immaterial? Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, great, great point. So the second scenario uh, you're describing, Hamed, is not a risk for me. It's actually a best case scenario. I don't mind rates staying stable for a longer period of time uh, because that is going to kill rate volatility, which was a very toxic development uh, last year. And the Fed will ultimately normalize its monetary policy down the road, starting maybe right now we're in highly restrictive territory and that cannot be sustained forever. Uh, so even though there will be no recession, the Fed is going to gradually reduce its policy rate. The fact that rates are staying high uh, for longer, well, I've observed that the US economy can actually take it. You know, are, are we seeing a sharp rise in defaults? No. it's a. Uh, um, the high yield sector is actually behaving quite well. Are we seeing issues with earnings and corporate profit? Uh, 
actually still surprising to the upside. There are a lot of strength here and lots of resilience. So that's that's not a risk. Your first point, though, yes, that would be 2022 playing out again. And that's my nightmare scenario. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, it's uh, that to me is a low risk. But if the Fed we're going to send signals that, guess what, we need another tightening cycle. Whoa, that, that's, a, uh, that's a serious tail risk uh, there. But I don't see that um, coming because inflation is a lagging indicator, right? The Fed is watching a lagging indicator. The Fed is actually looking at the rear mirror right now. It's driving, but it's focusing on looking uh, backward. Uh, and even that variable that is lagging is starting to adjust. So that's actually good news. We're, I think, in pretty good shape. Um, Are you concerned with um, the, the the sort of, by, by many estimates, the excess pandemic savings in the U.S. will, will probably uh, be wiped out by the end of this year, beginning of next year? Um, are you concerned at all with the durability of the U.S. consumer in that scenario where their excess savings get uh, spent away by the end of the year, beginning of next year. And also um, something that's not talked about too much is that we've had a, a resumption of, of student loan payments uh, in the United States. Uh, uh, I've seen estimates as high as potentially 0.3, 0.4% of GDP that that might be, uh, uh, it's, it's basically uh a withdrawal of stimulus, right? Because it's a tax to a certain degree. It's uh, it's income that has to be diverted to payments that had not been diverted to payments before. So uh, talk yeah. about those two uh, issues if you can. Yeah, so to be clear, the good days of fiscal stimulus are, are behind us, right? So the economy is going to have to learn to uh, be on their feet by, by itself. I think there's a uh this is this is passed so yes normalization of fiscal policy a bit of a shock uh, at the margin for student loans um not nothing to uh measure that would create some turbulence on the consumer side uh still a lot of resilience uh there's definitely some strength if you look at the latest numbers of consumer spending uh continue to surprise to the upside that excess savings is going to disappear, but we're going to go back to normal and uh, normal for the U.S. consumer. You know that better than me. It's, it's uh, still buoyant uh, consuming uh, uh, behavior. I know that because my wife is American and she visits the country uh, very often. And I can see that consuming behavior uh, at in play right there. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, uh, some buoyancy. Um, I mean, anecdotal evidence, uh, I spent uh, six weeks in the U.S. Uh, East Coast uh, this summer. Uh, do you see, do you feel, do you feel the recession of the consumer? I I, I didn't, right? It's uh, definitely uh, not there and I, I don't think it's coming. So um, obviously there's a there's the issue of disparity of income, uh, different income buckets will be affected in a different way, uh, for sure. And uh, uh, that excess savings is going to be phased out. Uh, that's uh, that's part of life, right? I mean, that's uh, you could not, uh, there's no way that <laughs> ballooning 
stimulus was going to be uh, sustained forever. Uh, but that's not that's not a source of concern. I see so many other pockets of resilience, even capex. You know, if if you think that the corporate sector will be in trouble, they would cut capex, right? Because that's easy to uh, to revise, right? So you you see your your very negative on your profit outlook, therefore you're revisiting your capex uh, plans. Those are still pretty healthy. So that's a very good sign. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the U.S. economic picture, um, uh, which, like we've said, is has been a source of positive surprise. Uh, a positive surprise has been, you know, uh, a surprisingness to the upside. But let's talk about Europe and let's talk about China, because those are two regions which have not been surprising to the upside. If anything, they've been surprising to the downside. Uh, uh, what are the potent, what are the possibilities or what's the outlook for you in Europe and China? All right. So in Europe, I think the only red flag is probably Germany, uh, where obviously it's a big red flag. It's not just economy in the in the eurozone, but everybody else is actually pretty healthy. Uh, a lot of strength in in uh, Spain, Italy, Ireland, uh, the Netherlands, and even France uh, is doing well. So as a region overall, um, I think the eurozone will avoid a recession, uh, uh, which is quite remarkable. Uh, I do like European assets as well because they are cheap, uh, but with the upside, uh, on the microphone, they I think they they're a good investment case. China, uh, there are two ways to look at China, right? So the growth model, the structural growth model is broken. Right, the the good old days of double digit growth that's all gone. Uh, the China is going to have to learn to live with uh, growth in the area of five percent, um, more or less, and that means something very different. That means uh, consumer driven, inward driven. Uh, but there are a lot of positive things in China, like investment in technology is super high, uh, very, very impressive. Now, there is also trouble. Uh, if you look at corporate defaults, they have doubled uh, from one year to another, right? <laughs> in just one year, the, the, the volume of corporate defaults has, has doubled, mainly concentrated in the property sector. The property sector uh, is... I wouldn't say the whole sector is bust, but a lot of large companies in that sector are uh, really facing the heat. Now, one piece of uh, comfort about China, uh, uh, and I would introduce the concept of policy room, right? So the authorities in China have a lot of policy room. They they have the ammunition to address a financial crisis if that financial crisis arises. Uh, so I'm not concerned about uh, China meltdown. Uh, will China be uh, a fantastic driver of economic growth at the global level? Not anymore, all right? So it's going to be much, much less uh, coming from China, uh, but that's part of growing up, right? <laughs> it's uh, like the economy is maturing. Uh, yeah, is, so is, China, uh, is China becoming Japan 19, circa 1990? <laughs> I've I've heard that story, uh, and some people say they should be lucky to feel again <laughs> to be in Japan. I think that's that's uh, that's a bit of a stretch. I I think um, China can sustain a growth rate of four to five percent, and they continue to invest uh, 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 massively in technology and and all those sectors. Uh, in fact, in sustainable investment as well. 
And uh, that to me is very positive for the long term. So no serious risk of deflation, long term deflation in, in China, the way I said. Mm. Okay. Okay. Uh, now let's let's shift over to the market and for investors here because uh, we all know that a a, a very profitable trade uh, has been to be uh, uh, purchasing short duration U.S. Treasury assets over the past uh, six months, really, uh, but probably even before then. Those who shorted duration or who were on the shorter parts of the curve definitely did well, especially on the fixed income side. Um, Given your outlook, what are some potential alternatives out there for investors who want to venture out from the mm -hmm. short parts of the U.S. Treasury curve? So I think being relatively short on the curve makes total sense. So that part I agree with. But now I would want to deploy credit risk, as I said, because of the macro picture I, uh, I, I uh, discussed. So away from treasuries, go into short tenor credit. Uh, you pick up yield, right? Uh, you're talking about uh, at the index level, yields uh, almost 6% for the one to three year uh, USIG credit. That's very little credit risk. I mean, from or little uh, duration risk times credit, right? So you're, it's not a risky asset class, right? You're talking about USIG um, with a short tenor. Uh, but you pick up a lot of yield uh, from, from treasuries. And uh, with that story that I'm rolling out, the end of the Fed tightening, the soft landing, which is a strong possibility, I don't see any risk of spreads really being wiped out, right? Uh, uh, a sharp uh, widening of spreads. And then you sit on a starting yield, which ultimately is the critical variable here. Your starting yield in fixed income, as you know, is going to be a key determinant of your expected return <laughs> in the period ahead. Uh, so if you start off at roughly 6%, you're in pretty good shape. Um, and uh, I've, I've crushed the numbers. Whenever you start at 6% for uh, now, like uh, based on historical data, your median return over the next five years would be well over 5.5%. Uh, uh, every single year for the next five years, right? And that's uh, mm -hmm. that's pretty good for fixed income, right? Uh, um, uh, will you outperform treasuries if you do that? I would say a really high probability probability that you will. Yeah, I've got to be careful uh, what to say. I cannot say guarantee, but <laughs> because compliance right, would right. be like What that. about those that are looking to extend duration it sounds like you're focusing a lot on just adding credit risk but on the shorter side how about yeah, those who are looking to extend duration as well i mean if we are um yeah. as you said if the fed is done hiking rates uh you know is the u.s 10-year 10-year bonds at this point you know it's a pretty attractive place to be um at four and a quarter 430 or so i'm not sure what it closed today around 425 um uh, uh, but but how do you see the duration side the extension of duration trade yes and that's going to be a big theme totally agree with it just not now right right now i would be in the front end of the curve i'm going to have to wait for that treasury curve to re-steepen which will be coming uh and when that happens then there's going to be more value to extend on the curve on the credit curve uh one positive development is if you look at the shape of the credit curve relative to the shape of the treasury curve it's actually much less inverted so there's, all, there's already a bit more value down the curve on the credit side. 
but is there enough value to pile onto the long end? I would say let's wait a little bit. I would want the U.S. Treasury curve to re-steepen. That will push the credit curve even steeper. And then you've got the case for extending that duration. But it's more like, uh, uh, let's call it uh, probably uh, late Q4, early Q1 next year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Right now, and- I still the front end. I'd like to remind everyone that if you have questions, uh, please submit them via the chat uh, or to me directly. I'd be more than happy to relay them. I see one question has come in, so we can go to that. Um, the The question is, is there a war economy benefit, benefit in Europe? Is there more GDP spending in France, Britain on armament? Wow, that's a tough question. Uh, Very specific uh, question there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, I Definitely Germany, when the Ukrainian crisis broke out, they committed to higher um, military spending. I haven't picked that up in France. Uh, uh, they're talking about cooperation and so on, but I don't think that's... Uh, uh, something top of the mind for governments at this point in time. Okay. Um, are there any sectors uh, that you would be looking to extend credit risk? Going back to the sort of uh, your first viewpoint here to uh, uh, to add on credit risk, any sectors that you particularly like, any countries that you particularly like, any sectors that you would avoid, any countries that you would avoid? No. So... Um, it, the way we think about our investment process is there are good companies in every single sector. So it's not necessarily a sector view, but it's really a bottom-up security selection process that we that we do, and um, we identified opportunities in every single sector. So it's hard to sort of characterize by sector, but because even you know, financials, right? Financials get a lot of bad press, a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, headline risk. Uh, we actually like financials for certain specific names, uh, in particular in Europe. Uh, European financials are very cheap, and some of the names are quite attractive, and we are very constructive of them. But there would be European banks that we would want to avoid, right? So there, there's always going to be the security selection process, which at MFS we're very proud of, right? We've got a, an army of credit analysts and and and. Uh, uh, financial analyst uh, looking at uh, at those names. Uh, um, I like emerging markets uh, for those that have the appetite for it. Um, I think the dollar is going down. It's the end of the strong dollar. Therefore, that benefits emerging markets. Global growth is actually being revised up. Right? We talked about China maybe with a negative undertone earlier, uh, but at the end of the day, the global growth picture is much better than we thought it would be uh, a few months ago. And that usually benefits emerging markets. Uh, uh, fundamentals in emerging markets are pretty strong. Obviously, again, it's, it's a matter of picking the right country. Uh, there are a lot of Latin countries that we like, yeah? Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Paraguay. Um, uh, looking at those opportunities, emerging market debt, you're, talk, you're looking at potentially, you know, sort of double-digit returns, right, for, for emerging market debt. So that's pretty attractive. Right. Uh, on that note, there's a question here specifically, if you have any opinion on higher quality, long-duration EM debt. Your thoughts? Yeah. 
as an asset class, I really like it. It's one of my top picks. I think if you look at, um, so I have valuation screeners across global fixed income and emerging market sovereign debt is one of the cheapest asset class uh, right now. And the fundamentals are very strong. If you look at uh, the growth picture in emerging markets, outperforming developed markets, of course, but by, by a large margin, uh, if you look at the external position of emerging markets, you know, the balance of payments and so on, it's like really got stronger. Uh, and, uh, and again, I would uh, stress that the weaker dollar, uh, which is coming after that summer bounce, uh, uh, that's also positive for emerging markets. Yeah, we we actually um, it's 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 funny that you say this because uh, I heard you mention Mexico. We're actually putting out a primer on Mexico tomorrow. We're publishing it tomorrow here at Insignia, where we're going to be looking at uh, some Mexican bonds, equities, the Mexican peso, the economy there in Mexico. Uh, uh, maybe share your views on that. So. If they differ too much from our views, uh, our cafes could hear um, your views on that. Yeah, so anyway, I spent many years at the IMF, so I care a lot about uh, the credibility of economic policies. And um, if I had to single out one country in the emerging market that has credible policy framework, I think Mexico is one, uh, uh, both at the central bank level and, and at the finance uh, ministry level. So uh, pretty solid, uh, very well-managed uh, economy there. Uh, structural reforms, uh, growth dynamics, uh, nothing. Uh, obviously, there's still uh, uh, a few issues. You know, this is emerging markets, but I, I would say uh, overall a pretty solid story. Yeah. Excellent here. Uh, uh, so so we have only a few more minutes here. Any sort of uh, um, uh, final thoughts, either on the macro side or the investment side that you want to leave us with here? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the macro earlier, and then we had a really good uh, discussion. I also wanted to highlight that the valuation picture in emerging, in, in fixed income is, is amazing, right? Uh, that's also uh, a very strong argument here. If you look at the total yields, they are as attractive as they've been for the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, obviously, complements of that massive rate correction we've, we've gone through. Uh, but that, that's a big deal. Why? Because, again, it's your starting yield. Uh, so valuation of fixed income is spectacular right now, and I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> it's, it's really a call to action. Uh, uh, the the, the short-term credit in particular looks very attractive excellent so maybe uh, uh finish us off here with a little bit of some details about your team and what you do over at mfs so uh if our clients want to reach out or or find out more information where and how they can find it yeah so i'm part of the investment solutions team right uh and uh the mandate of my team is to precisely help the clients uh and to uh really uh be out there and help uh, clients be become a better investor. <laughs> so that's uh, uh, that's my role. And I focus mainly on fixed income, but I have a multi-asset background so I can tackle uh, many topics. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, well, th thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, uh, we hope to be able to have you soon. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. See you again. Bye-bye. Take care.
Insignia Financial Group LLC comprises a number of operating businesses engaged in the offering of brokerage and advisory products and services in various jurisdictions, principally in Latin America. Brokerage products and services are offered through Insignia International Financial Services LLC, headquartered in Puerto Rico, and through Insignia Securities LLC, headquartered in Miami. Both are members of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA, and Securities Investors Protection Corporation, CIPIC. Investment advisory products and services are offered through Insignia Advisory Services, LLC, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Uruguay, advisory services are offered through Insignia International Asesores de Inversión Uruguay, SA, Insignia Asesores de Inversión LATAM, SRL, and Insignia Asesores de Inversión de Uruguay, SRL, in Argentina, and through Insignia Argentina, SAU, and in Chile through Insignia Asesorías Financieras, SPA. Collectively, these eight operating businesses make up Insignia Financial Group. To learn more about the broker-dealers, including their conflicts of interest and compensation practices, please go to https colon forward slash forward slash insignia.com forward slash disclosures forward slash or via www.finra.org. To learn about Insignia Advisory Services and any conflicts related to its advisory services, please see its form ADV and brochure, which can be found at, ins- at Investment Public Advisor Public Disclosures website https colon forward slash forward slash advisorinfo.sec.gov forward slash.